Thanks for tuning in. You're now listening to the latest podcast from House SF. For more information about House and our heart for the city, please make sure to visit our website at www.housesf.org. Merry Christmas. I think I could get away with saying that now, right? We're close enough to Christmas time. And you could tell, too, with all the empty seats and the quiet. It's cozy. Like we're li- I almost feel like not even using a mic, but my voice is going to be just awful if I don't, regardless. Um, this is going to be fun. We've got some time together. We're going to worship some more at the end of the service. We've been in a s- series which is called Season of Miracles, and there? Yeah. Much better. Yeah, so we've been in this series called Season of Miracles, building up to what, you know, the greatest miracle of all time is Jesus coming to save us, right? The fact that God sent his own son to pay for our sins and allow us to be in relationship with him. So Christmas season is amazing. Um, I'm just going to come out and ask you, has everyone done with their Christmas shopping? No. Has anyone started? No. No, no one. <laughs> this is like... No, I started. No one's has... One person has started? Things, yeah. Y'all got a lot of work to do. <laughs> Everyone's like super quiet and just like, no. No. Yeah, there you go. Expedited shipping. So... As we've been out shopping, Anne Marie and I have been doing our shopping and been seeing a lot of the, you know, the cards, the decorations, a lot of the nativity scenes as well, which is great. But looking at it, it's probably like not super accurate, right? Not probably. Like, come on. How Caucasian was Jesus and all the wi- the wise men and like everybody? Like, right? He's like blonde hair, blue eyes, everything. Um, and then I was hearing a song the other day, We Three Kings. Does anyone know the song, We Three Kings? Mm-hmm. No. The thing is, there's not a whole lot of us here today, so I'm going to hear you like no one's speaking back. We three kings of Orient are. There you go. That's true. We should, should have Sam sing it. So the thing is, even that song, looking at the nativity scene and then singing that song, because we've sang it for years and years, like, it was one of those ones that, like, you don't always sing it. Some churches sing it. But going through it all, the three kings, the magi, whatever you want to call it, the wise men, and then the nativity scene, I was starting to think about, like, actually, some of this stuff is not accurate at all, the more that we look at it. Like, not to debunk the, the nativity scene, I'm totally going to, like, ruin it if someone just went out and bought a whole stack of cards, Right? with like Hallmark cards with a nativity scene on it. It's so beautiful. My mom had this nativity scene growing up, like these little, it's like very delicate like figures that she would set up like the day after Thanksgiving and put this whole thing with snow and it would have like the little manger and everything like that. And the manger was so tidy. It looked like a little farmhouse and everything and had all the magi and everything with their gifts. But then the more and more you read the story of Jesus and the birth of Jesus, you see like some of the stuff wasn't lining up completely. And not that it's a bad thing, but I figure today we're going to focus in on these guys, the three wise men, the three kings. How does that sound? See, the way we started Season of Miracles is we began with focusing in on Mary and Joseph. 
And then the following week, we focused in on who? The shepherds. So why not today focus in on the Magi? So let's read. We're going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And if everyone has a Bible or your phone, give me a wave if you're ready. Y'all ready? Y'all ready? Some of you can just read on the screen too. All right. Verse 1 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. Verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them exact, the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After that, they had heard the king, or excuse me, after they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star had seen the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his, his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Say that like ten times fast. <laughs> so the Magi, wise men, these three kings, who were they? Let's talk about this real quick, okay? Let's kind of like lay the ground level for where we're going to go today. Obviously, it says, Scripture says that they were from the east. Where exactly from the east were they from? They're from Medo-Persia. So they were actually from a place, everyone know where Babylon, Babylon would be, everyone has heard Babylon in the Old Testament, right? That's actually where they were from. So these guys were from Babylon. Hate to burst your bubble, for those of you that have the nativity scene with the crowns on their heads, more than likely they were not kings at all. In fact, they were astronomers and astrologers. Interesting, right? See, the title used to describe them was common for those who were respected scholars in the regions that they lived in. So these people were looked up to. They're greatly admired for being wise, hence the name, wise men. There you go. So these wise men, these magi, which is short in the root word for magic, magician, they would have come out of Babylon. These would have been the same guys that Daniel, Old Testament Daniel, from the book of Daniel, would have been, been head of. Anyone remember King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel? And Daniel was the head of all the magi? There you go. That's what these guys are part of. They're part of this group. Everyone with me? Sound right? Yeah. So, not kings, wise men. They were wise. Just going to come out and say it. They were kind of like pagan priests. Not to ruffle anyone's feathers and like pull the religious rug out from underneath us. These guys were not Christians. 
They actually, I know, what? They actually reverse in like Eastern religions. But, yeah, because they didn't go to church every Sunday. These guys were, were the epitome of Gentiles. They were not like, in fact, them coming into Jerusalem, Jews would have not liked this. Because there are these, these Far East, these magicians, these sorcerers, these astrologers, right? But these guys are wise, but there's something to be said. They knew about this star, right? Scripture tells us when we first started reading, after Jesus was born, these guys came to Herod. So they actually knew about the star and they knew about the prophecies, which you could come up with a pretty good story saying that they would have known this through Daniel. Through Daniel, there might have been converts inside of Babylon, in, the, in like authority within Babylon. So along with the Magi, there's a story that kind of has been around for years and years, decades, that there's three of them, and they had three, each, each of them had their names. I don't know if you guys have ever heard this, but I'm going to try and say their names. Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar. Anyone ever heard of that or seen it? I've seen it in plays a lot. More than likely, there wasn't just three. There's three gifts. There could have been up to hundreds of these guys. So that's like, there goes the nativity scene again, right? (laughs) Not just three dudes walking by themselves. There were three astrologers, probably on Persian horses, probably with an entire entourage, because this journey that they're on was like over a thousand miles. So it wasn't just like three lowly guys went by themselves and thought like, let's give it a go. There's a star out there. Let's go see what this is all about. We heard this guy Daniel talk about this before. No, it's completely different. And we sing about this star that guided them. Even in Three, three Kings, We Three Kings, we sing about this star that completely guided them. But what's kind of misconceived about this all is that the star itself didn't actually guide them to Jerusalem. The star actually began their journey. Once they saw the star, they figured, let's go to Jerusalem, let's go to the Holy Land and see who this King of Jews is. You all with me? Yeah. Okay, cool. So going back to that, the star didn't necessarily lead them to Jerusalem, led them obviously to Bethlehem. But many theologians also reference that this star was the star that was from Numbers 24, 17. Scripture says a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Egypt, or excuse me, not Egypt, Israel. And so this is in Numbers 24, and many historians refer to that verse and that scripture saying that that was a prophecy that these men followed. Now, we just want you to think about this for a moment. These guys are on this journey for months. Thousand miles, horseback, whatever it may be, see the star, they want to come and find out who this king of Jews is. They show up and they ask Herod. They come into Jerusalem, holy land, right? Everyone should know about the Messiah. Everyone should know about this king that has come. This is all throughout the prophecies, right? There's a prophecy for over 700 years in Micah chapter 5. Prophecy for generations and generations. Everyone would have known about the Messiah coming. But these magi come in and they ask Herod, where, you know, where is this king of the Jews? No one knows. Isn't that kind of odd? If you think about it, these three wise men, they would have been thinking like, what's going on? Here we are, like, we're from Babylon. 
And we came into Jerusalem to find their king, and they're not even looking for him? Like, what's going on? Like, no one's talking about him? We walked into the kingdom, and they all seemed surprised? Like, it would be really odd for these wise men. They've been on this long journey, and then all of a sudden they're like, this is y'all's king, not ours. And like, you guys aren't even looking for him. What's going on? It's just an interesting setting that they have going there. They're like, you guys got the prophecy, you got the star that obviously was shining. But no, no one knew. So Herod goes and gets consulted, and they find out, and they say, well, he's going to be in Bethlehem. So they tell these guys to go to Bethlehem. Do you realize Bethlehem is like maybe five miles from Jerusalem? Maybe five miles. So no one in this kingdom is even talking about this. The king of the Jews, the Messiah has come, the star is out, the, prophe- you know, the prophecies are coming to pass, and no one's even talking about it. And so again, these guys are thinking, like, what is going on? They literally just tell us to walk away five miles, and that's it. But what I find so interesting about this, y'all, is, like, these people were Gentiles. They weren't even practicing Jews. It really goes back to show us that ever since day one, God was all about everybody. God was all about the Gentiles as well. He wasn't always only just for the Jewish people. This shows us like he was for everybody. In verse 11, scripture goes on to tell us that the young child was, was there. Sorry to burst some of your bubbles again. Nativity scene? Jesus was probably a toddler. He was not a newborn baby. There was a bit of a gap here. I know. Oh, no. So, little Jesus, little baby Jesus running around, they come in. And what does scripture tell us as well? When they get to the house. Not a manger. Again. Sorry, nativity scene. I'm like taking shots at the nativity scene. But not a manger, they're actually in a home. See how we've got it all kind of all mixed up? Like it's this cute little scene where these guys like come from afar and they're very rich and they come and with all their gowns and stuff on and there's this light coming down and there's baby Jesus on hay in this little like trough, right, with cute little sheep and cows around and he's in this manger when it didn't really go down like that. But what I want to kind of shift our focus to this morning is their worship. There's something miraculous about this story, and I really believe it's in the posture that the Magi had. They had this heart and this posture of worship. So what I want to do is I want to break it down into three characteristics of their worship coming into this Christmas season. Y'all ready? All right. Number one, the first, first characteristic of their worship, it was expectant. They're expecting something to take place when they came into the presence of the king. Why else would they have traveled miles and miles and miles? It wasn't like they just jumped on BART and went to the East Bay. Like, really immerse yourself in the story to understand the weight behind this. These guys traveled about a thousand miles horseback, braving the elements, braving the night in these roads to come and worship this king. When these guys were astrologers, right? Astronomers, they weren't like they were Levites working in a church. They weren't like priests or anything like that. 
And these guys came all this way to worship. In fact, they were so expectant, that's what kept them going all that distance. I bet when those nights got hardened, they thought, like, what are we doing? We're not going to be received well when we come into this area. We're not Jews. We don't even practice Judaism. We're not going to be received. But they just kept thinking about when once they would be in the presence of the king. This expectancy drove them to step out in faith and go to this far off land. Not only that, it just created this excitement and expectancy in them where they brought these gifts as well. And the thing is, like even after all the things they would have heard, all the prophecies, all of the stories they would have heard, right? The long wait, over 700 years, I bet a lot of people would just have given up. 700 years. You wouldn't live through that. We wouldn't live through that. That's a long time. That's a long time to not receive a promise. You hear that? 700 years. When we feel God has spoken to us and we're not getting, we're not seeing the answer of our prayer, how do we feel? One day in, we start getting frustrated. And like Morgan said, we start to question, God, are you even around? Are you real? I'm not getting this answer. Where's my answer? Where's my yes? I want what I want. God, I asked you for this. You're good, right? You're good. You give all these good gifts, right, to your children. Where is it? These people had a prophecy for over 700 years that the Messiah was going to come, that their ruler was going to come, and nothing happened. But the Magi had faith. They had this expectancy. We've heard this prophecy. Yeah, it's been over 700 years, but all they knew is they wanted to be in the presence of this king. They wanted to be there. For them, hearing was not enough. They wanted to see him face to face. The second characteristic of their worship, it was expressive. Nothing was going to get in the way of them showing honor to this king. In fact, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, scripture tells us that when they saw the sight of the star, they were overjoyed. Overjoyed. I can't help but read that. When I was reading through it, I was thinking, how often can I say I'm actually overjoyed to be in the presence of God? When's the last time I was overjoyed to communicate with God, to spend time with God? They could have said, oh, they were encouraged when they saw the star. No, they were overjoyed. They're besides themselves. There was hope. It was happening. This was taking place. And they got to be in the presence of the Messiah. They were overjoyed. Verse 11 says, when they saw, see, when they saw him, they bowed down and worshiped. The King James Version, I love it because it actually, the way it describes is it says, they saw him and fell down and worshiped him. Now, the thing is, we don't read anywhere in Scripture that when they came into the presence of King Herod, they worshipped. We don't see anywhere in Scripture that you could look through all four Gospels. When they came into the presence of Herod, they didn't bow down. They didn't honor him. But here they were in the presence of a child, 
of the Messiah, and they instantly didn't just drop down to the ground and think, let me straighten up my robe here right quick, or I'm going to clear some dust off the ground. They threw themselves on the ground in worship, in reverence. They worshiped this child like the true king that he was. I think about this as well because they didn't allow their dignity or pride or anything to get in their way. These guys were dignified. They would have been well-respected. And Babylon was huge, okay? Jerusalem was nothing compared to Babylon. These men would have been highly esteemed in the kingdom of Babylon. And here they are, just throwing themselves on the ground and worshiping. I can't help but think about them in that moment, what they would be feeling. All this journey, like, thousand miles. Like that's further than driving to, to Mexico from here. Do that on a horse and back and then might as well go up to Reading while you're at it. <laughs> like that's, that's it. Without using 101 or without using I-5. That's what these guys did. But finally, they got to see him face to face and they knew it was a success. Everything they had planned, everything that they had sought to do, this moment had come that they were finally in the presence of the Messiah. In fact, the Greek word for rejoice, its definition, excuse me, is to fall down or be shattered. The sentence, like the descriptive sentence that it gives with this word, it says to refers to a building collapsing. And that's what these men did, these dignified men, esteemed men, when they came into the presence of this child, they collapsed in worship. It's Christmas, right? Jesus is the reason for the season, huh? What's our response when we enter the presence of God? I want you to ask yourself that, and I'm asking myself that too. In this season, out of all seasons in our year that focus in on Jesus, what is our response when we enter the presence of God? It's kind of convicting to see that these guys just drop down in worship, in reverence, and realize their need for him and their desire to honor him to bring him gifts. Even though he was the ultimate gift, they wanted to bring him gifts. It's funny because we always want to receive God, God. I want my life to be a blessing. I want to live a blessed life. I want more of this, God. I want more of that, Father. What, why can't, you know, I want more influence. I want more success. I want all of these things when maybe we got it all backwards. Maybe we should be coming like these wise men up to the king's throne and coming to his feet and throwing ourselves down in worship and saying, I actually give you all of me. What else can I give you, Jesus? The final characteristic of their worship was that it was extravagant. They came bearing gifts that were fit for a king. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh to us. We might know what gold is, and the other ones are like, okay, maybe it's like incense or whatever, right? They're three of the finest 
finest resources in Persia at that time. These items were not cheap and not easy to come by. They're quite expensive. Especially in their pure form, they would have been super expensive. And these guys brought this with them on this journey that was a thousand miles. They brought it all. I'm going to go kind of in teaching mode for a second because I want to try and break down for you the significance of these three gifts. All in all, how scripture teaches us is that these gifts were expensive and they're of high value and that's why they brought it to Jesus. But they also have prophetic significance as well. Now, many theologians and historians will actually point to these three gifts saying that it was a prophetic statement signifying the authority of the Messiah, Jesus. And the first gift was gold. Gold is related to royalty. It's given to kings. Even in one kings we see Queen of Sheba, when she came to Solomon, what did she do? She came to, tw- to test him and test his wisdom. And when he answered and she saw that God was real and that this man had the Spirit of God on him, she brought him gold. And she brought him all of these gifts and lavished him with gifts. So this gold is given to kings. There's royalty in this. Again, Scripture doesn't tell us that they brought any gold to Herod. Right before this moment, remember, they're standing in front of the king of the Jews. They didn't bring gold. They didn't give him anything. They actually kept this for Jesus. Now, something that's interesting is I want to go back to the Old Testament for a moment and see just the parallels here. Now, in the Old Testament, in the the temple was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. This was a place that only the high priest could go. And it was so holy, they could only go once a year. And in fact, you'll hear stories, too, that they had a bell tied around them or something that would make noise in a rope, that just in case they walked in and they fell dead in front of the presence of God, they could drag them out without going into the Holy of Holies. But what's really interesting is the walls and the altar in the most holy place were made of gold. They're all lined with gold. The inner sanctuary of the temple was lined with gold. And the old covenant is where the temple, this tent of meeting or the temple, right? This is where the presence of God resided. In the new covenant, Jesus was the incarnate presence of God. Right? So that parallel Old Covenant, Old Testament, people would go into this place where the presence of God was and there was gold. Lined with gold everything. New Covenant, Jesus comes, people lavish him with gold. Frankincense. Did I lose any of you? You guys still with me? All right. Frankincense refers to like an incense. Incense is related to divinity. So this speaks to Jesus' divinity, fully God, fully man. Now, frankincense was used in ceremonial worship of deities. It was also burned at the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple. Now, there's actually quite a bit of scripture that refers to frankincense. In Exodus chapter 30, God himself describes to Moses a fragrant blend of incense that Moses is supposed to put together containing pure frankincense. And this is supposed to be set apart and deemed as holy and sacred, okay? 
And God says, this is only to be used in the tent of meeting where my presence is. Put this in front of the ark and I will meet you right there. I'll meet you in that place. And God also warned him not to make any incense with this formula. Don't make it for anyone else. You need to consider this holy. So prophetically speaking, frankincense speaks of this newborn king who is divine. And myrrh. Myrrh speaks of humanity. Jesus, yes, was fully divine, but he's also fully human. So eventually, yes, he would die his sacrificial death. But myrrh was used for perfume. It was used for anointing oil. It was used for medicinal tonics. It was also used on bodies in preparation for burial. In Exodus 30, again, God refers to myrrh. In anointing oil, he says to make this oil with myrrh to consecrate all of the items in the tent of meeting. So also to use this oil on Aaron, the high priest, right? And all the Levites, all the sons of Aaron to consecrate them as priests. So use this myrrh to do this, to set them apart. And again, he warned them, he warned Moses, don't duplicate this. This oil with the myrrh, don't duplicate this. This is actually holy. This is set apart. This is only for me. So prophetically pointing to Jesus, his consecrated life and his sacrificial death. Now they laid all of these gifts down in honor to the king which had come. All of these expensive gifts. And did, like, did the wise men realize the significance behind these gifts? Probably not. It was just that they were really expensive. But what I want to really just wheel everything in, I know that's a lot to understand about each item. But what I'd love to point you to is their desire. Their sole desire and motivation was to see the king so they could honor and worship him. That's all they wanted to do. See, Christmas time is, it's really a call to us. Christmas time is a call to us, the church, right? To turn back and to focus in on worship. We come in with all of our agendas. We have all of the things that are going on throughout Christmas, all of the events, right? All of the calendar invites, all of, everything going on in our world. All the dinners, all of the gatherings, all the things that we do. But Christmas is actually a call back to us a call for us to come and worship the king. Worship him as these magi did. You know, we just spoke about their posture, these three men. But I want to ask you, during this Christmas season, what's your posture? What is your posture of worship coming into the season? Are you just sitting back waiting for the gifts? Are you just going through the motions and showing up to church because it's the thing to do? Are you coming to worship the king? Are you coming to actually give, give yourself to him? Give back to him instead of just taking and receiving? Are we coming back as an offering and saying, we want to worship you. We want to give you all of the glory. In Psalm 95, I love how the psalmist says it, David, he says, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. But then he goes on to say this. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, 
for he is our God. Talk about posture. There's something to be said with our posture in worship. And you know, we kind of have thrown around Jesus is the reason for season. We hear that all the time. And you know it can be a bit cheesy. But what I want to actually do is I want to flip that. I would don't want you to leave today without getting this. Yes, Jesus is the reason for celebration and he's the reason for the season. But I want you to hear this today. You, all of you, you are Jesus' reason for the season. The whole reason that he came down was for you. The whole reason that he came to earth and lived on earth, lived a perfect life and sacrificed and gave up himself on the cross was because of you. So in this Christmas time, I want to challenge us to refocus our attention and realize he is worthy of worship. That you are the reason for his season. You are the reason for Christmas. Do you understand that? Do you get it? Talk about a gift. We always think that he's an amazing gift, but do you get it? He would have never came if it wasn't for you. You are his reason. You are his reason every day. He looks at you and he says, I would never take it back. I would do the cross a hundred times over because of you. Because of how much I love you. I'm going to invite the worship team on up. So isn't it ironic in this little town of Bethlehem, a name that literally means house of of bread that our Savior is born. Right? But then it makes you wonder when John 6, 35, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So wouldn't it be like God to send his son, the Messiah, to be born in a little town that's called House of Bread. That the bread of life was born in this place. That our bread of life, and Jesus comes out, his cry and proposal to us is he says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. You'll never be thirsty. You'll never grow weary. Christmas brings up a host of emotions for so many of us. So many of us, good, bad, indifferent, whatever it may be. But Jesus is making this, like just setting this invite out for all of us. Come, come. I'm the bread of life. Every desire that you have, every desire that you yearn to be fulfilled is in me. All you have to do is come. Psalm 96, David again, in a place of worship, he says, for great is the Lord and worthy of our praise. You know, we had fun earlier and talking about the nativity scene and kind of poking fun at that. But I would hate for you to leave today without missing the complete heart of this this story. 
that you were his reason. You are his reason. But more importantly, he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our praise. In these next couple weeks, even as we go up to Christmas or next over week and a half, what's our focus? Is it going to strictly just be on going to things and pumpkin spice lattes and buying gifts? Are we going to take a moment to break away from the busyness of Christmas, the busyness of the season, and to focus our attention and our eyes to the author and perfecter of our faith and to worship him, to give him a gift of praise this season. Amen? Let's stand. Thanks again for listening to the House SF podcast. We pray that you're encouraged today by this message. If you'd like to partner with and support our ministry, please visit us at www.housesf.org.